Welcome to episode five of the Give Us Time podcast, the series that highlights the extraordinary members of our armed forces and their families. Uh, our guest today is Josh. For those of you who don't know who Josh is, he is an army veteran who was involved in a very serious incident in 2010, resulting in the loss of his limbs. For some people, this might have slowed them down, but not Josh. He has gone on to do some truly remarkable things. Uh, his list of accomplishments are truly staggering. Uh, he's won a bronze medal, two silver medals and two gold medals at the Invictus Games. In 2013, he cycled from Paris to London. And he's also become the world's first triple amputee rescue diver. So uh, we are very honoured to have uh, Josh here. So Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. Cheers, Alex. Thanks for having me. And joining us alongside Josh today will be uh, Give Us Time Managing Director Rupert Forrest and uh, Give Us Time Ambassadors Scotty Derrick and David Richmond. Uh, our first question is, um, how did your military career begin then? How did it all start? Wow, straight in. Um, my military career began uh, when my family decided they were moving from sunny Slough to a place called Lavastoft. Um, and to me, it, on a map, it's only 180 miles, but to me, they might as well have been moving to Australia. I was not going, if you know what I mean. So I needed to do something with my life. So I followed in my dad's footsteps and I, um, 17 and a half years old, went into the recruitment office and went, I want to join the parachute regiment. And my dad said, don't do that. You'll just get blown up. I thought, Look at now, looking back at it now, great advice. Cheers, Dad. <laughs> now I, um, I followed in his footsteps and I joined the Royal Engineers. In the past, we've spoken with uh, Scotty, Rupert and David kind of about um, the, the culture shock and the change. What was that like for you? Um, I, I sort of, I think I needed it at that point in my life. I wasn't really going anywhere. I sort of, I was actually, <laughs> I'd left school not really knowing what to do. And I did what every other not 17 year old boy does when you leave school. Went to college and I did hairdressing. Um, oh, okay. David knows this, <laughs> Scotty knows this. A few people know it, but see, you know, it really wasn't great. I, I just sort of fallen into it. I was a Saturday boy in a barber, so I went from that to then being stood by my bed, being shouted at because my kit wasn't straight, etc. Um, and it, it, it gave me discipline and it, to be fair, it gave me a career um, and a career I absolutely loved. So with your dad being in the military, obviously that played a big part then. Uh, I think, um, I know obviously Rupert as well, um, his dad was in the military. Uh, what was it like for you then growing up, you know, being kind of a military brat, as, they, uh, as they're called? Pad's brat. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> That's where I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here now drinking a, a cup of coffee out of a Portsmouth football club mug. That's where I was born in Portsmouth. My dad was at the dive school there. Um, and I was only, I think it was, I was three when he left the military and he joined the police. So I, I, got, I went from military to police. And that was what my sort of career goals were, was to do a, a stint in the army, um, get some experience in life, and then hopefully following his footsteps and, and join the police. Oh, amazing. Amazing. So, I mean, so... The next question is always a fun one. Um, so where were you first um, deployed? David was in Berlin. Scotty was in Catterick. Um, where, whereabouts were you? <laughs> uh, so I, after I did my basic training and um, combat engineer training where you learn to blow stuff up, uh, which was great fun, I, uh, I went and did P Company and got uh, past that and then went and did my parachute course and got my... And I, I deployed to Aldershot. That's where I was based first. But my first... Oh. Sort of, my first overseas tour was to um, to Afghanistan in 2006. So what was that like then in uh, 2006? Uh, best way to explain that, I turned 
it, it turned me from a, a sort of a boy to a man. Um, first time a, a round goes flying past your head, it's like, wow, this is for real. Um, yeah, that tour, Herrick, Herrick 4, that was. I'm not sure if you were there, David, um, or you were in a mess reading a map or anything. I'm not sure. But um, <laughs> well, um, uh, do, do you guys beginning to see what I have to put up with around it? <laughs> <laughs> and, and like, I, I was going to mention this earlier, Alex, but how much did Josh pay you to make that introduction? Oh, Scotty, do we no, go before, and before, again? before I forget this, the one thing that sticks in mind of um, Mr. Bodges or Elder Bodges um, uh, uh, Invictus medals is the last time I saw them, he got two silvers and a gold. And the gold was in rowing, and he actually went to compete in cycling, and he got two silvers in cycling. He so sure <laughs> what training for cycling did for his rowing. <laughs> Scotty, what have you got to say there? <laughs> I, I, and I think Josh as well, are you still the um, triple amputee Rowan Invictus record holder? Um, um, apparently so, yeah. He, he, he done well, he done well the boy in the cycling, then he just jumped yeah. onto a rower. Well, yeah. it, was, it was a prep before sort of Invictus where they said, do you want to have a go, have a go at anything else while you're out here? And I thought, well, once the cycling's on the first day, that's it over for me. I'll just be enjoying <laughs> myself for the rest of the week watching my mates compete. And they said, well, I said, I'll have a go at rowing. How hard can it be? That's horrendous. Scotty will attest to that. Uh, four minutes of going Mac 10 on a rowing machine. I, I saw three of them by the time I got off. And yeah, I got told I'd won a gold medal. I had no idea. And the next thing I know, the BBC reporter in my face basically saying, so rowing's your passion. Blah, blah, blah. She was a bit shocked when I said I got on a rowing machine for the first time yesterday. <laughs> so um, going back to uh, 2006 then, so you went to Afghanistan. How long were you there for then, Josh? Um, well, we were attached to another unit. So I, uh, we were there for six months. We were attached to 5-1 parachute uh, squadron, Royal Engineers. Um, and we did, because we were attached to them, we got the worst R&R slot. We literally went for six weeks. Nothing happened. We were patrolling down streets with uh, just floppy obviouses on, um, body armour wasn't on, and then went on R&R &R for two weeks, came back, and then overnight it just, as if someone had lit a fuse and it just went bang and it all kicked off. And it went from a peacekeeping mission to pretty much all-out war. Yeah, about it a lot as well. Um... David, obviously, Josh is one of the people you were speaking about when you were referring to those brave soldiers who were going out every single day um, yeah. and, you know, putting, put, putting their lives at risk. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think, what, yes, I mean, what I was saying then is, you know, we, there's a lot of focus is, is given to those guys who win gallantry medals and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and rightly so, because the, the bar for the award of those is incredibly high. Um, but what it, what it, all, but it risks overlooking is the guys who walk out every day knowing that within the hour they're going to be in a full-on ding-dong of some description and that take, that takes real guts every single day um but it just sort of comes with the turf it's just an assume, something that's assumed is going to happen and um i think it's really o e easy to overlook just how how challenging an environment that is and the sort of characters you need to be able to go and do that and the pressures on leaders doing that every day with a load of guys who understand what they're getting themselves into yeah 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 i i have one for josh because because actually whilst you're going out every day if they actually found anything it was josh 
you wouldn't mind just dealing with this nasty bit of kit we found or blowing this stuff up. So actually, you know, whilst everyone was getting involved in ding-dongs as you were, you also must have felt that as a an extra pressure because, you know, if stuff did come along, you were the guy who knew how to deal with it. Well, on that, um, when we first went in 2006, it was... There wasn't really anything in the ground. There was legacy stuff from sort of Russian wars, etc. But it was more conventional war fighting. I mean, one point I was on a bun line looking into a town called Musakala, and the, I think I was with C Company on Free Power, and the call came along to fix bayonets. What do you mean fix bayonets, if you know what I mean? It was, <laughs> yeah. honestly, and we were all, because being engineers, we were there, exploding for the entry, so putting a charge on the wall, blowing it, mouse holing, uh, and the lads would go in. And... I've never seen. I've, we fired every bit of every bit of P4 and mouth holding kit we had that day. Um, yeah. It's just uh, it, everyone just went out there thinking it was just going to be a peacekeeping mission, and literally, like I said, overnight it just it went kinetic. And at the end of the day, we were just one brigade battle group. So there were three thousand soldiers at one point trying to police the size of England, um, which is Helmand Province. Um, and yeah, we were massively undermanned. But obviously, over the next few tours, when David deployed on t- in two thousand and eight, with um, your battle group was attached to sixteen air, well sixteen air assault. Yeah. And it all just obviously more blokes, more blokes, and that's when they, I, I sort of found that the tactics had changed. I mean, when I left Sangin in two thousand and six, I got on a Chinook and it took off, and there were rounds rattling off the side. I went back in in two thousand and eight, thinking to fight my way off the back of a Chinook. And there were Royal Marines sunbathing on the HLS, if you know what I mean. It just shows you where it changed over two years. Um, don't get me wrong, it was still a dangerous place. But instead of just fighting to stay alive in the fob, guys were pushing out further. Yeah. So you did, um, was it three tours did you do of Afghanistan then? So you did 2006 and then 2008? Yeah. And then you went back did, in 2009? Yeah, so... Did 2006, Herrick 4, 2008, which is where David got his flesh wound. Um, and then <laughs> I redeployed, yeah, for my, so 10 days after my little boy was born, I redeployed for my third tour in 2010. Uh, but this is when, Rupert, we, we, we'd re, pretty much the whole squadrons in the engineers were being retasked from explosive method of entry and construction to basically search teams trying to find the IEDs because the threat had changed. Yeah, yeah. So then, obviously, moving forward, then, um, Josh, do you want to speak about, um, would you mind speaking about what happened on that day on New Year's? Um... Yeah, so New Year's Eve 2010, um, we were just getting rid, we were going out on a dawn patrol. Um, I was I was the second in command of a search team, a team designated to find these IEDs. And I was working with the Irish Guards, and they wanted to go a mile down the road, take over a compound stick a section of guys in there, they would fight the Taliban and the local village would just get on with its daily life. I mean, that's the, the shorter version of it. But um, yeah, we went out um, just before first light. So you're all there, stood at the back gate, helmets on, MVGs, body armour, checking all your equipment and patrolling out. Uh, we were towards the back of the patrol, um, literally you patrolling down the road, just following the bloke in front of you, trying to stay in between them white lines that have been searched. Uh, and yeah, about 20 minutes into the patrol, there was just a massive bang at the front. Big dust cloud came out the ground, and we know we knew what had happened straight away. The guy at the front had 
stood on an IED. So we went about clearing a HLS uh, helicopter landing site to get the Chinook in. Um, that happened. He got sent back to Bastion. Um, and yeah, 20 minutes, half an hour later, I was I was in the ditch on the side of a road, having been blown up. Fortunately, there's a picture of me that, that morning before we went out or the morning before, and I've got half a bar mine, half a bar mine, loads of explosives in the top of my day sack. Um, and my job that morning was to mouth hole again. So charge on a wall, blow it. Um, guys would go through it instead of having to grand national over the walls because of, um, you're just trying to avoid doorways all the time because they're VPs, vulnerable points. So guys were ended up going up and over walls and they were getting shot at. So we just put some mouse holes on the wall and got them through. Um, and yeah, I've literally blown my last hole and I turned around and the white lines had gone off the floor. And I was like, Bez, Bez, one of the lads from the metal detectors, come and search in front of me. He started searching in front of me and I watched him do it. And then I took a step to my right. And the next thing I know, I'm in midair. Then I'm in a ditch. Now I can't breathe. I can't see. My ears are ringing. Um, and yeah, I knew something had happened, but I didn't know it was me at first. I was in no pain whatsoever. I just couldn't breathe. Scotty will know about this. Being punched in the kidneys is really hard, but you just, you just can't breathe. Um, and yeah, right, something's happened. What's happened? And it wasn't until two of the lads jumped in the ditch and started putting tourniquets on my legs that I realised, right, it's me that's been injured. Um, and again, I was in no pain whatsoever. It was just the shock, like shock and adrenaline. And uh, I don't know, like I said, 20 minutes, no pain whatsoever, laughing and joking. Uh, I think I got annoyed with a medic because she kept asking for my ZAP number, which is your first two uh, initials of your last name and your, your last four of your army number. And I think the fourth time she asked, I, I swore at her and told her to go away. Um, I had my mates around me. I was stable, bleeding and stopped. Um, and I knew the Chinook was on the way. Um, and, yeah, the minute I heard that Chinook, I knew I was going to be all right because um, you can hear it from miles away. And it flew over the top, landed. I got thrown on the back, showed airborne to the boys. And the next thing I know, it's like a movie scene where everything goes dark and there's just a face in your face. And it was a doctor. Um, he said, you're clearly conscious. And my words to him, I can't repeat in this podcast, but it was along the ways of, please just put me to sleep. I've had enough now. Um, big needle in my chest. And yeah, that was me. I was induced coma on a helicopter. What? So did you not feel... But did you not feel anything at all? Were you just completely fine throughout the whole experience? Because obviously in our last podcast, we spoke to David. He once again said that when it first happened, it, he didn't feel anything. But then the penny dropped. There was um, only a referee, remember? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to be honest, I've actually cut myself four times shaving. And it's on the same level as pain, I suppose. Yeah. But anyway, continue your story, Josh. <laughs> Cheers, Scotty. Um, yeah, no, no pain-wise, I just think it's a shock on adrenaline. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I've seen people. I've seen people be shot, blown up, loads of sort of stuff, and everyone reacts differently. I've seen guys screaming for their mums after they've been injured. If you know what I mean, and I just you don't know how you're going to react to. You're in that situation. You know what I mean. I don't know, I'm sure we'll come on to it later, but it's happened again to me and David was there, so he'll tell you how I reacted. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, like I said, no pain. It hurt when I started, when, the minute I heard the Chinook, that's when it started to hurt because I knew that was help on the way. Um, yeah. But even then it was, right, just show a face, don't be screaming, don't be... I think it's a pride thing as well for me. I just yeah. didn't want to didn't show... I didn't want, in case something had gone wrong, 
I didn't want people's last last memories of me were to be me screaming for something. Um, to be honest, I I don't know what was going through my head. I just know it didn't hurt. Oh wow, that's really uh, yeah. I mean, I think from all of us hearing what had happened, I think we all would have thought of yeah, it would have been way more painful than the way that you're describing. So you flew back to uh, Camp Bastion. Um, and then you were, I'm assuming you were then sent back to the UK then. Yeah. I, sorry. I, I mean, I think I was back in the hospital within 47 minutes of it happening. I mean, they had the golden hour in Afghanistan by this point where if they got you from point of injury to the hospital within an hour, I think it was 94% chance of survival, whatever yeah. had happened to you. Um, I mean, and like I said, I, I, I'd been put in an induced coma by now and I didn't have a clue what was going on. Mm. I was then back in the UK within 24 hours at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. Um, and yeah, my first recollection after injury was to a priest stood above me. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm in heaven. I just remember seeing the dog collar, <laughs> the old uh, priest collar. Um, yeah, just it was a, the military padre that was at the QEHB in, in Birmingham. Uh, and I thought, wow, I'm in heaven. And then, yeah, the next time was I trying to find my rifle. My, my dad and my ex-partner at the time were trying to tell me that my legs were gone and I was telling them that they were lying because I could still feel them. I was all over the place. The amount of drugs that they pump into your system when you're in hospital, you haven't got a clue what's going on. Yeah. Intensive care in Birmingham is a round circle with a nurse's station in the middle. And to me, it was the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars. There were yeah. people fighting with lightsabers and stuff. I was all over the place. I didn't have a clue what was going on. Finally, I, I spent a week in intensive care and eventually they moved me to the normal ward, Ward 412 in the QEHB. And first night up there, I had a dream. My sergeant major had come to the end of my bed and told me to follow him. So I somehow managed to sort of sit up and fall out the side of the bed head first, uh, knock myself out, smashed all my lips. I was all over the place. I was, I was in a deep, dark place. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, was, that hurt more than getting blown up, just not yeah. knowing what was going on and not knowing... You didn't know who you were anymore. You'd gone from this 24-year-old lad who was doing this tour then was going to be promoted to corporal and had his life planned in front of him to yeah. who am I now? What, what is life anymore? Um, and yeah, I mean, what, two weeks after me and David had a good conversation when we were in Mallorca about the first time you went to the toilet after being injured. And mine was sort of two and a bit weeks after being injured. Finally managed to go and get on a toilet, <laughs> go to number two. <laughs> Um, and it's horrendous because you're so backed up. <laughs> I'm not going to go into too much detail, but the, <laughs> honestly, the amazement of the elation of finally going, it's like, wow, cool. And then as I did that, I managed to fall off the toilet and smash my legs on the floor. Um, and that was the lowest point in my life. Lowest point in my life. I'm lying on a floor in a hospital in the fetal position, completely naked. And I knew I had to pull the orange cord to get some help to get back in the wheelchair. And I managed to pull some boxes on for some decency, pulled the cord. And it was just like, who am I anymore? I've never, I honestly didn't know at that point where, what I was going to do with life, who I was anymore and stuff. And um, yeah, it's a day or so later that a guy walked past my room and I set prosthetic legs. Um, and I managed to pull the orange cord, get him to come and talk to me for a good 10 minutes, show me the legs. And it was sort of, at that moment then, I'd sort of accepted that my legs and my arm were gone and this is who I needed to be now. Um, yeah. And yeah, from there I ended up a couple of weeks in hospital and then went to Headley Court. So, I mean, that's just, you've just described it incredibly well. Um, just from, like you said, being 24, 
and then to, to this whole kind of new life um what was kind of you know obviously what was being then in Headley Court like because you from now from what you described you've got such a positive out, outlook I mean I've, I saw your motivational speeches and everything um when did the, that sort of mindset then start to kick in a bit or was it kind of did, was that a few years later um for me it was literally sitting there in hospital and seeing it was a guy called Kingsley Ward power reds lad with these prosthetic legs on and an arm missing who thinks he's missing his left but it was just like right that's awesome that's who I'm going to be now if you know what I mean and then when you get to Headley Court um there's just robots walking around everywhere people with half their heads missing and gunshot wounds and you just think right I'm normal I fit in here if you know what yeah. I mean so um and literally within a day obviously you're apprehensive when you get there but everyone's there for the same reason um and the first six so my first admission was six weeks within two weeks of being there I was sort of four foot nine on a little set of stubby legs it's just a socket with a pad on the bottom and, and then two weeks later I was like a few inches taller and then so 12 weeks after being injured they got me back up to six foot on the microprocessing needs that I'd seen in the hospital um, oh, wow. Well, I say six foot five eleven because David will pick up that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so within yeah, you're, five, you're you're six foot in heels though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then, obviously, uh, from that, then Invictus then came along. Um, um, sorry, it didn't come along straight away. Didn't come along straight the, away. <laughs> I, I found that I went. I sort of I went on that. I'm happy to be alive bender for two years um where you literally you are that happy to be alive that you just you're out all the time you're enjoying yourself and honestly you just you, you, I can't put it any other way than you've gone from this near-death experience to while I'm still alive let's enjoy myself um and they call it the Headley Court diet as well because the food that it wasn't very good it was a contractor that did all the food at Headley Court so most of the lads were ordering Domino's every night or Chinese Funnily enough, you end up putting loads of weight on. And yeah, two or so years after injury, I remember looking at myself in the mirror and going, you fat. And I won't repeat what I said to myself. <laughs> but That's the first uh, first Invictus Games for me was um, 2016. I think you did the 14, didn't you, Josh? Yeah, I did, uh, I did 2014. Um, and I say I did it. I, I wasn't fit when I did it. It was a... I just I didn't actually want to do it the first time. If I'm being honest, it was a so I always thought it was going to be a big sports day for injured soldiers, and the public would want to come and hug you and feel sorry for you. And that's just not me. Um, I think my wife was working for Help Heroes, then, and she sort of convinced me to do it. Told me how big it was going to be because they were running the UK team, um, and yeah, put my name down for it. Didn't really expect much, and then I'm stood in the garden of the US Embassy watching the Foo Fighters and I was thinking right this is pretty big okay <laughs> then the next day was the Athletics and I'm sure David were you at the Athletics Stadium but I think there were 8,000 people there watching yeah I can't believe it yeah yeah it was big I don't think any of us knew what the 2012 games were going to be um, until they really started and then I think we we're all pretty much blown away by how big they turned out yeah, I mean, doing the cycling, I, there were thousands of people at the velodrome in London watching it. And yeah, I went into it and I won a bronze in a time trial, which I thought was awesome. 
And then I got lapped quite a bit in the road race. And I thought, oh, well, I've won a bronze medal. But it wasn't until a, a few weeks after that that I just, I'd really sort of committed to riding the bike and trying to make it go faster. And I was working with, um, working with the development squad of British Cycling. And they sort of sat down and went through the results with me and basically said, right, in a, in a, in a short time trial, the guy's nearly beat you by a minute. That's not good. <laughs> in the road race, he's lapped you. That's not good. What are you going to do about it? And that's where I sort of went, right, well, I'm going to lose weight and make this bike go faster. Um, fully committed then, stopped drinking, started eating properly, um, losing weight. It's amazing how much weight you lose when you stop drinking and start eating properly. <laughs> um, but yeah, the bike started getting faster and I started feeling good about myself. Um, at the start of 2016, I'd, I'd been selected to go to um, Orlando. Um, I took myself to Mallorca for three months just to ride my bike. Um, I literally drove out there from home and just rode the bike for three months, put everything in life on hold, got fit, went to went to Orlando, saw the bloke, the French guy who'd lapped me, thought he's having it. Yeah, and I went into the time trial and he beat me by a second, uh, which I was a bit gutted about. Went into the road race and thought, I'm going to smash him. He beat me by half a bike length. But it, when you look back at it now, it's better than being lapped and beaten by minutes. So um, I closed the gap. Slightly embarrassing. <laughs> um, but hey, I, I smashed him in the rowing in the afternoon, though. There we go. <laughs> 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 you and David have, have known each other for a while then do you just well does one of you want to give some background on how you two met because you, you've known each other for, for quite a bit yeah go on Josh I was going to say after you sir <laughs> <laughs> no no not at all <laughs> um, I met I met David at Headley Court um, and I was always jealous because he had the side room so he was away from people snoring but then they put Mr. Bellringer in there with you who snored louder than a, 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 a hippo snoring, I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, but um, He yeah, could move, move curtains with that snoring, couldn't he? <laughs> yeah. You could hear it down the other end of the ward. It was bad. Yeah. Um, but um, no, I met David properly when I moved to the same village as David in 2014, wasn't it? And we yeah. started drinking in the same pub and you ran as boss back then. Um I was, yeah. God, I forgot about that. Yeah, no, it's good. So, yeah, it goes back to um, does go back to Headley. No, I was in a side room because I, I think it was just my last surgery, and I was at a raging infection. So they popped me in the side room to get me out of the way. Um, it was great for the infection, but not so good for the sleep with um, <laughs> bell ringer next door. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, but, so it's there, and then you moved down the road, started drinking the pub, went out for a few bike rides, that kind of stuff, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then through Invictus, you had so latter Invictus stuff again as well, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and yeah, basically living in the same village and drinking in the same pub. Um, and Ali and Anna got on really well. And Clara would used to babysit Jensen every now and again. Um, so yeah, just grew a friendship from there, then, yeah. I guess, boss. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So then, um, so moving on then. Um, to the 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 other incident that happened so, and so you were um training in Mallorca. what were you training for were you training for um the paralympics or was it another invictus was this when we were out there together yeah 
Oh no, we were literally on a jolly to cycle around the island. Um, oh, <laughs> it was a it was a cycling holiday uh, with a. I think there were six couples. Were there? There were ten of us or twelve of us? I can't remember. Twelve, ten of us. Um, five couples just literally doing a lap of Mallorca, stopping in different hotels, and went to bed early the third night. So I knew I knew the island pretty much like the back of my hand. I knew the fourth day was a big climb to the, the highest point of the island. Myself, David and Alan had decided that we were going to set off early that morning um, to get up the hill before the sun came up. Um, it was an emotional climb. I wouldn't say I was bike fit at that point. Uh, I sort of, no, I sort of after, I did, um, I did the race across America in 2017 and I loved it. I trained towards it, been part of a team that did it. And after that, I sort of fell out of love with a bike. So I was still training on it, but I was nowhere near as fit as I was uh, when we, when I when we were out in Mallorca, got up the hill, had a bit of apple cake and a coke at ten o'clock in the morning, so I was knackered. Um, and then a bit more climbing, and it was just after twelve, wasn't it, David? That we finally went through the tunnel at the top and yeah, to descend into Port Sawyer, um, ten mile descent, and half a mile down there, I decided that I wanted to crash into a lorry. <laughs> That's why I put it. <laughs> Yeah, I remember, so we've gone through the tunnel, left-hand bend. I've gone around that. I, to be honest, it's a bit of a blur. I knew that I was approaching a right hairpin. And in my head, looking back now, I started braking, broke a bit more to get in, moved out to the middle of the road to get around the hairpin and put my brake pressure on a bit more. And then my front tyre just decided it didn't want to exist anymore and blew. Um, and on the handbike, both your brakes are on your front wheel. Um, so in my head, then I went, ah. Index, I'm dead. Straight away, first time in my life, I'm not stopping this bike. I haven't got time to drop off it. By this point, I remember Laurie coming around the corner. Um, and again, life just slows down. It's like I've, uh, crashing a car. When you Before you know you're going to crash a car, life slows down. Um, I remember just seeing the axle turning. And honestly, it was the first time in my life I went, I'm dead. Index, I'm out of here. Um, oh. I'm hurtling towards a lorry. Next thing I know, I'm on the other side of the road looking up at the sky going, well, I'm alive. I don't know. David will probably explain it a bit more because he was right behind me. There may have been a few little squeals, but um, in my head, I was perfectly composed and I went, oh, my head's all right. <laughs> my right, I've not broke my arm. My, I've not broke either arm whilst being connected to a bike still. My left, my right leg's all right. And I went to pick my left leg up and nothing happened i knew i'd broken something and i just remember picking it up and there was blood squirting out the end i need a tourniquet i need a tourniquet um and it, it it this was hurting um wasn't like being blown up i was in pain straight away on this one um so yeah david might say see it differently but that's that's what i can remember yeah i mean i think i, I was what 20 30 metres behind Josh going down, going down the hill. And um, I didn't hear the tyre blow, um, but it was because when you, on a handbike, when you lose, if you, if you lose your front tyre, you lose, not only you lose your steer, your braking, you lose your steering as well. And from that point onwards, Josh just went arrow straight. And um, at that point there was a, I did see there was a truck coming around the corner the other way. Um, and my first thought was, this is going to smart a bit. Um, and, uh, uh, and he, and he was, it was, a, it was a proper. Oh God, here we go. 
Um, and um, somehow he missed missed going under the front, which would have been curtains. And I think that was more luck than judgment, to be honest. But impacted on the, it was a sort of tractor and trailer sort of truck, articulated truck. But he impacted the rear wheels of the trailer, having sort of glanced off the little bar that stops you going underneath the trailer at the side. Glanced off that, hit the, hit the wheels. But instead of a sort of glancing blow on the wheels, it hit it pretty much square on and, is, and therefore went from, I don't know, 55, I think we worked about 55 k's an hour, wasn't it? Going yeah. down, the truck coming up and say, let's say it's doing 30 k's an hour coming up. Um, and you went from a closing impact of, let's say, 80, 90 k's an hour to zero and going backwards in oh. in the blow. So you, 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 it wasn't a sort of impact that just a skiffed off it and carried on down the mountain, which actually could have been worse, to be honest. Um, and um, I then had Alan was just in front of me as well, and we just slammed the brakes on. I, I shot past Alan because I and stopped behind beside Josh. And as I got off my bike, um, he was squealing like a good one. Um, and I thought, and I did think as I as I was coming to all, oh my god, that we'll be picking a dead body up here actually. Um, the, the noise then gave light to the fact that he wasn't dead yet. Uh, and as I jumped off my bike, there was a big chunk of chunk of flesh on the road, literally where I where I put, where I jumped off. It was right in front of me, and for some reason, I thought that's a bit of his face because with the crank in front of your face and the impact on the back wheel, I thought he'd face planted the um, the crank. I mean, I had no reason to think it was his face particularly, but that was my first thought. Anyway, his ugly mug was squealing enough. When I looked at it, clearly it hadn't come off his face. <laughs> and um and it had come off the end of his stump um so um we then had the the um there was blood chunking out the end of it so we thought okay well tourniquet needed so the only thing i had really to hand bearing in mind when you're on a bike you haven't got an awful lot of stuff with you was my cycling top which you still owe me by the way um <laughs> <laughs> so I, I unzipped my top exposing my my muscular chest and um, emptied the stuff out of the pockets and just chucked it on the road. And then I had to, because they're stretchy and I saw a tourniquet, you don't want to be stretchy. You want it to be really, really um, rigid. So I had to spin it and spin it and spin it around to get it, to make it as, as rigid as I could. And then just wrapped it around and, and tied it off and then sat and I had to hold it because of course you can't, because of the nature of the material, it doesn't exactly, it doesn't hold a knot. It's quite slippy. So I then spent much of the rest of the time sitting, holding this. And then Alan, supported the supported josh's um stump a bit until we could get took our helmets off put one underneath his stump and one underneath your head actually i think it was wasn't it yeah. um, and um and then i thought okay we've got we seem to have got the sort of bleeding sorted for now and um <clears throat> people will start to run around around us having realized there was this was this wasn't funny this was quite serious and we reassured the bike the the, the uh the lorry driver who was really worried it was it was just bad luck for him he didn't do anything wrong he was just driving up the hill um so he went and so started mastering some traffic and then i thought i better have a look at the rest of him because he he hit that hit that truck like a train so i i hold it on to one i did a quick over the over the so body so head neck shoulders do you poke prods it does it squeal pelvis all this kind of stuff nothing and i thought how could he hit the truck that hard and there'd be nothing else? I mean, there was a there was a bruise on one of your one of your hands, wasn't there? And there was a 
and your stump was clearly trashed and your hip wasn't right. But there was nothing else. And I, I went through this, I did it twice or three times, each time thinking, am I missing something really obvious? And then I thought, no, I'm not. No, no, somehow he hit the truck that hard with predominantly his left-hand side and his one surviving arm doesn't even have a mark on it. There wasn't a scratch on his helmet. There was, it, was just, it was just weird. So, my glasses uh, were still in my helmet as well. My, my cycling glasses were upside down in my helmet and they hadn't come out. Yeah. And um, so, anyway, we'd, uh, somebody then, they called the ambulance to come up from wherever it comes from, quite a long way given the amount of time it was. The police had turned up and we were still holding on. Then a couple of doctors from the UK cycle paths stopped from, weirdly, from Bournemouth, was it Bournemouth or Poole Hospital or something, wasn't it? Um, and the reassuring thing was they said, actually, there's nothing else we can do. What you're doing is the right thing. Um, you just need to wait now. Um, and um, we managed that. And then it just took a while for the ambulance to get up the mountain, I think. Uh, and when the ambulance, it was quite funny, when the ambulance did turn up, they sort of got their stuff out of the ambulance and trotted over. And you could see them going. And I did say to them, I said, all right. <laughs> he only had one arm to start with. Um, <laughs> yeah, we didn't have two legs and an arm around them. They were missing already. And you think, oh, okay, right. Um, well, let's let's see what we can do here. And they started doing stuff. And um, Josh, Josh got quite at that point. Got quite agile. Yeah, what are they doing? Why are they doing this? What's this stuff? What's and, and I did at one point say, Josh, just shut up, shut up, and let these guys do their job. No, no, no. no. <laughs> And, and I sort of emphasised it with a, a few naughty words just to... <laughs> anyway, so they then sort of got him sorted. And I thought, actually, I'd better phone... Because my phone had been ringing, which was the girls at the bottom wanting to know where we were. And then eventually I, I phoned my wife and said, right, um, you know, there'd been a, there has been an accident. I said, but, but Josh is, is, is all right. He's pretty beaten up, but he's, he's OK. Because um, my, my thought was if, it was, if he was going to die, he would have died within minutes not now we've got ambulance we, we're all right actually um for the for the immediate thing so just have a chat to anna we're going to go to the hospital all that kind of stuff and then what we decided to do was alan would stay and pick up all the sort of the detritus that was on the road of bikes and stuff and bits of bikes and bit, bits of prosthetics and goodness knows what else and i'd jump in the ambulance and go to um go to the hospital which i did and uh that started for me what was five hours of walking around the hospital <laughs> with, with my cycling shoes and socks and a pair of cy cy cycling bib shorts on and my, and my heart, heart rate monitor with my phone stuck down the inside of it. <laughs> no shirt on. And, I, and every time I went to the Spanish nurses and I said, do you have a gown or a t-shirt? And they just laughed and said, no, no, we don't. <laughs> you can carry on walking around looking like that. And, um, oh, no. And then Anna said to me later, she said, I can't believe you walked around with your heart rate monitor on all the time. I said, well, would you expect me? If I'd taken it off, where was I going to put it? <laughs> I mean, only turn up with a day sack full of stuff. I could just check everything off. But that was it. And, you know, Josh went into theatre and, uh, and had his injuries assessed. And Anna, I met Anna at the, uh, at the hospital and gave, gave her a hug and just said, look, he, yeah, she will. He, he's all right. He'll, 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 he'll pull through this. Um, but it's serious. Uh, and then I think your yeah, Josh had been stabilised and they 
sorted the sort of wounds out in the end of his stump to start with and pretty much left your hip for the time being and what we discovered it was that you'd 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 completely broken the hip right up at the sort of the neck of femur which goes into your sort of hip joint and um Oof. taken about 10 centimeters or 15 centimeters off the end of your stump which was a pretty good effort really because that that bit of his body had taken all the impact mm. And that's how I'm still to this day amazed that that was the extent. I mean, those injuries are pretty serious, but I'm still staggered that was it. Um, and uh, then I remember saying to Anna before you we were off to go in to the, see the surgeon after the initial surgery and just said, look, li li listen to what he says and don't fixate on the negative stuff. It's not, I, no, I had no idea what he's going to say. But what I did know, it was, wasn't all going to be good, but it wasn't all going to be bad either. So listen to it all and um, and we'll... Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll help you, and if you've got questions, ask and all that kind of stuff. Her exact words were, "David, David went in full colonel mode." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So get your heels together, Mrs. Bodgy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was I didn't have a clue what was going on. Um, I remember being getting to the hospital on the side of the road. I just remember them giving me some fentanyl, and I was happy then. Pain had stopped hurt on the way in the ambulance but I, I was conscious of David in the front and him, he actually shouted to me at one point if your phone doesn't stop ringing I'm going to throw it out the window uh, <laughs> it kept pinging the whatsapps on it oh. was, <laughs> it was uh, painful <laughs> I was, I I was on the ground. To, ch to chuck his phone and just say we, I don't know we didn't see it can find it anywhere <laughs> I remember being on the road on the mountain though and basically saying to David the passports and my phone are in my bike, in the back of my bike with a camelback. Um, and it's just as well because they wouldn't have treated me otherwise, would they, if they hadn't have had my passport um, from all accounts. But no, I remember getting to hospital and being put in the MRI scanner and then put to sleep. And the next thing I know, I woke up with David, Anna, was it Linda at that point, stood over uh, me? Yeah, I think it was, actually, yeah. yeah. Um, and they wouldn't let me drink any water. I had all the tubes down my throat. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was in a deep, dark place, but I woke up the next morning and I felt fine. Yeah, this was, um, also I was in touch with, I was in touch with uh, the guys when they're out there cycling. And I remember texting Ali, you know, some great pictures the night before and stuff. And I remember sending Ali a message, how's it going? He looks like you're having a great time. And about an hour passed, the next minute my phone started ringing. It was Ali Richmond. I thought, oh, I wonder what she's ringing for. Have they run out of gin in Spain or something? Or have they <laughs> anything like that? So it was, um, I answered the phone. She says, Scotty, I just wanted to say that. Um, and she says, are you sitting down? I went, hey, what's going on here? She says, just to let you know that um, Josh is still alive. And I was like, well, this is going to be good. And I said, right, <laughs> okay. She said, he's, he's had a little bit of an accident on his bike. Um, David was with them, and they're just going to the hospital now. They've had X-rays and uh, CT scans or whatever, and it's it's pretty bad. They've lost again. David said 15 centimeters off the stump. He's uh, his injured arm uh, was hurt a little bit, but his good arm it was intact. And it was this stage then that I don't really see this much. So it was this time that I started to weep and cry because it wasn't the fact of his injuries, because if it was his good arm being hit. Then I could have had a chance of getting his Breitling watch that I've already had first dibs on. Um, and I was absolutely gutted. Uh, one, I never got... But then on a serious note, it was... 
I was like, jeepers, oh, and I was looking at getting a flight to go out and see him and, and other bits and bobs, but then it was deemed that we had the operation and stuff, and then we touched base then with the surgeons, or your surgeons back when Salisbury, I believe, or back somewhere else, and then when you came back over, it was it was another thing. We've had so many blood fusions and um, all, all the rest of it, but Josh, jump in any time this bit. Yeah, I mean... I um, woke up that the, the morning after and felt all right. Anna had brought my phone and I'd sent her a list of stuff that I needed, an iPad, toothbrush, that sort of stuff. And yeah, felt good. I went into surgery the day after that to, for them to pull my hip back down and bolt it back to the neck of femur. Um, and that's the first time in my life, again, I was scared of going into surgery because I didn't know what I was going into. Not many of them spoke English. I mean, the, the, the actual surgeon was brilliant. He spoke English. He was... He's really young, wasn't he, David? He was quite yeah. a young guy, uh, yeah. but he was brilliant. Um, and yeah, so got that surgery done. And then on the Sunday, so this is what, five days after after the crash, the, the head of the intensive care came in the room and went, you can go home. I was like, happy days going home. We've been in touch with Miss Cricket Salisbury Hospital, who's, she is the most amazing surgeon ever. She's operated on me more times than I've had birthdays, I think, if I'm being honest. Um, <laughs> she's also... She's also quite scary. <laughs> she's an amazing woman. Um, and she knew what had happened. She got me a bed ready. She was waiting for me to come back. And she was going to carry on because I'm going to need more and more surgery to, to repair the damage to my left leg. Um, and, yeah, that's when it all started going wrong. Um, basically, my HB level, your hemoglobin level, it kept dropping. So to be able to fly back, your HB's got to be above 80 or 8.0. Um, and I kept dropping below. Uh, and the insurance company in the hospital in Spain weren't really, they were talking to each other, but not really talking to each other. And I ended up staying in Spain for a, pretty much another week, uh, not really knowing what was going on. I'd been moved from intensive care to a normal ward. Um, and I just dive bombed. I just got worse and worse and worse, ill. Like my leg was going numb. Um, we just didn't know what was going on. And the insurance company in the hospital, again, weren't talking to each other properly. And it took... Miss Crick actually ringing my insurance company and basically saying, if you do not get him home in 48 hours, he's going to die. Because you know how bad my leg was. I contracted sepsis out there, which is blood poisoning. Um, and yeah, downhill, downhill, downhill. Uh, finally got back on the Saturday, wasn't it, David? So what's that, 10 days after the crash? Um, or 11 days. And I remember you coming into the hospital room that night. I just wanted some junk food. I needed some salty, horrible food. Please go to McDonald's for me. And David bought me in a Big Mac meal and some nuggets. And I think I ate a nugget and three chips. And I just, I just couldn't do anything, if you know what I mean. I was all over the place. Um, when it, finally went into surgery the Sunday morning. And from all accounts, died on the operating table to be brought back round by Miss Crick and her team. Um, the sepsis, she basically said she unclipped my leg and it all just fell to bits and all black goop and horrible stuff came in where it came out where it was infected the bone had started being infected so she had to cut more of the bone off my leg um and i'd gone from a normal ward and i woke up in intensive care again um to anna stood over me and yeah 10 more weeks after that i finally got out of hospital i mean that is yeah that is something else i don't, I don't know whether you're just unlucky or the most luckiest man i've ever met I mean, 
Right. He's hanging around with David too much and Scotty. I was going to see. I was going to see David as a jinx. <laughs> what was it like? Obviously, I mean, from a family side of it all, you know, I mean, that must have been really hard for Anna and um, and your and your son. That must have been. Well, I mean, that a lot of things must have been going through your mind and everything. I mean. What, what was it like after after all that? You know, the recovery I mean, process I, after. I can I can honestly admit I, I don't think I'd be here for now, now if it wasn't for Anna. I mean, she was awesome. Um, obviously, David had to stop her flapping when it originally happened, but after that, she was just a godsend. I felt so sorry for her in the hospital in Spain, especially because she was on to the insurance company. Just get him home, get him home, and yeah, yeah. If, if it wasn't for her pestering so much, I'd have died in Spain. And even when we got back into the UK, her bringing Jensen into the hospital for the first time to see me. She said on the way down there, he was really quiet in the car and wasn't really sure. But he literally came in the hospital, pulled my sheets back, looked at my leg and went, you'll be all right. Pulled them back over. And they're all the first about. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but no, I mean, it goes back to in Afghanistan, you knew the, issue, you knew the risk was there. That's the job at the end of the day, but to be fair, I've got a 10-mile descent now. I'm just going to enjoy it. I wasn't going that fast. Mm. Um, if you take, when I did the race across America, I descended a climb called uh, Wolf Creek, and I was hitting nearly 60 miles an hour on the bike, hitting hairpins, and the bike is on the limit, and your backside's all over the place. Uh, this was just a, right, I've got a 10-mile descent now. We're going to enjoy this, and there's a beer at the bottom. I didn't even pe- pedal, if you know what I mean. I, wasn't approaching the corner that fast, went to break, and your life can change like that. Um, but luckily, I had friends with me like David, great family behind me in Anna, um, and something to live for in Jensen. I think that's what gets me through it. Yeah, it's really good. I think, as you know, our charity knows the importance of family in these things is just so key and so important, you know, and family is always there as like a rock um, that's, you know, that's throughout all these. Uh, incidences that um that happen um a question that i do want to ask as well is a question which i've i I ask on all of them and after all this what do you think you would tell yourself as a 17 year old joining the army you could go back in time and tell him what would you tell a young josh joining the army was the best thing i i think i ever did in my life and i'd stick by that um it gave me discipline it gave me a career um, and it it sort of put me in that path on my life to to who I am now. Um, yeah, I wouldn't have been able to do even getting injured. Yes, it was it was bad, but it's not the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Um, it, what am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is that if if it wasn't for the injury, I wouldn't have been able. To, been able to do all the stuff that I've done since injury. I wouldn't have been able to cycle across America. I wouldn't have competed for my country in the Invictus Games. I wouldn't have met Anna. Yeah. You know what I mean? Who knows? Um, Yeah, that's just life. Um, Fantastic. I mean... Yeah, 17-year-old self, though, just enjoy every moment you can. Um, Life is peaks and troughs. Mm. It will go up and it will go down. It's how you get yourself back up that makes a difference amazing amazing i've asked all my questions as i always do now i'm gonna open it up to the floor um rupert's first scotty so (laughs) (laughs) 
So, Josh, are you, are you back on the bike? Or are you just going yeah. down to the pub with it now? <laughs> um, I'm back on the bike. Uh, pubs are all shut at the moment, Rupert, so I can't go down there. Uh, <laughs> but, but I don't know. Um, no, I'm back on the bike training. I'm sort of zwifting now. So, uh, just turbo trainer at the moment. Looking outside now, I'm, I'm, I'm now what you call a fair weather cyclist. I don't like getting wet anymore. I, what do you want to do that for? Do the same amount of miles on the turbo trainer. Um, um, so yeah, um, back on the bike. Do you know what? I'm actually I've, I've done I had surgery seven weeks ago, and I've been back on the bike for three weeks, and I'm starting to feel strong again. Um, I'm not trying to sit at 250 watts for 20 minutes anymore. I'm just enjoying riding the bike. No, no, great, great uh, speaking to you about this, and thanks for being so so upfront about it all. Quick fire round, get to know Josh a few questions. So it'll be kind of one or two words, kind of Josh, just to, to fire it out there so that the listeners can get an understanding of of who you are and how you tick a little bit, which this will be a good. Um, so Alex, if you can kind of give me a minute countdown um, and we'll see how we go. So then, Josh, what is one of the things you would put on your bucket list? Uh, bucket list. Um... I don't know, mate. There we go. I don't know. I've done loads Great. of stuff. Glad so we've only got a minute. <laughs> Off to a flying start. Absolutely. <laughs> start as you mean to go on. Well, here's one. Who's your favourite superhero? Superhero Thor. Why? Because he's a good-looking sod. Excellent. And he swings a big <laughs> hammer. <laughs> yeah, you can't argue that. Who do you admire the most? Uh, who do I admire the most? Uh, past. <laughs> who do I admire the most? Do you know what? No, do you know who do I admire the most? All the guys that have been through the same thing as me because they've all changed their lives and gotten back on track. Good. Morning or night? Morning. Boxers or briefs? Boxers. Describe yourself in three words. Um. Short. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, funny, good looking. <laughs> well, well, we'll cut those last two out because we can add something else. Yeah. In. Um, favorite sport? Uh, football and rugby. Bradley Wiggins or Mark Cavendish? <sighs> no comment. <laughs> what is the one thing? Last question. What is the one thing you've always wanted to do? Uh. Be a police officer. Oh. Hmm. There you are. We've got to know Josh a little bit there. Uh, you know what? He doesn't know much because he just passes on a lot of questions. <laughs> okay, I mean, finally, uh, before we uh, sign off, we just want to know, um, what does family mean to you, Josh? What does family mean to me? Um, everything. I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't about my family. It's as simple as that. Um, I was chatting to another lad earlier about when you're first injured, blokes are so stubborn, you try and do everything yourself. Everything, even if you can't do it, you're still trying to do it yourself. Whereas, just have some help. It's not hard to ask, if you know what I mean. And having my family here and being having them around me, it, it's helped me on my re road to recovery. Um, and even more so this second time, because I haven't had Headley Court to go to. So, um, we've... What drives me and what pushes me to try and get back walking again is being able to 
just walk down the street with my wife, go to a pub or whatever, going for dinner, and to get back into coaching football and being coaching my son's football team um, and just being a good dad for him. And as much as you can do that in a wheelchair, a wheelchair is like a set of handcuffs to me. It's, it's not me. So having them behind me and in front of me is helping me put to where I was before the bike crash. Well, thank you so much, Josh, for um, sharing that and for being so open and honest and sharing your story. That's all we've got time for today. Uh, I'd like to thank Josh for being part of the Give Us Time podcast and for David as well for um, attending again. Uh, join us next time for episode six of the Give Us Time podcast, where our guest will be Ross Austin. Uh, if you don't know who Ross is, he was recently on the Channel 4 show, The Bridge. Um, he'll be joining us and he'll be talking about his military career and his life. So make sure to like and subscribe to the Give Us Time social media pages and we will see you then. Thank you very much for listening.